0: Welcome to our podcast series, Getting to the Core Issues. Hello, I'm Joanne Bolada, And I'm Ann Harmston. Each segment, we will interview healthcare innovators whose models will help transform the healthcare delivery system and provide solutions to the healthcare puzzle joanne and
1: i were extremely intrigued by this because we both feel very strongly that the integration of mental health and behavioral health is key to treating the whole person
0: Have personal experiences is going yeah. through the system with that with family members unbelievable isn't it it's just yeah. awful i have a family member at a very young age could have benefited from having that integration with the pediatric you know, docked in a pediatric practice, having a behavioral health specialist there, things would have gotten caught earlier, maybe ADHD was would have been diagnosed much earlier and treated and unfortunately didn't happen until high school, you know, and at at that point, things were just so bad that it's just continued to snowball. But had there been that integration, early intervention through that, um, you know, having an integrated practice, that situation might be different today. You know, and even with another family member who had some surgery, had a chronic illness depression is the first thing kicks in when you hear something like i have cancer or i have you know alzheimer's or, i've got something else and having a, an integrated practice where you can write then a team working with you to not only deal with your medical condition but also deal with your behavioral health condition at the same time could bring better outcomes as well you've just completed a three-year pilot program Yes, this
2: is kind of an interesting story and why we even decided to undertake integrated behavioral health and primary care. I mentioned that we have performance measures in CTC and one of those performance measures is emergency department visits and we struggled long and hard and really had difficulty hitting the target of a 5% reduction in emergency room visits over a comparison group. We had some years when we got close, but I don't believe we ever hit the target. And it was just a constant grind. And so we had been having conversations with the primary care docs about all of the different things they were doing to communicate with patients about access and come see me first and don't go to the ER Mm -hmm. without giving us a buzz because we know you best and we can help you. But as we talked about it, the behavioral health issues became more and more evident that folks were saying that they believed that the folks that were going to the emergency department, not all, but in part, were largely driven by people with behavioral health conditions or comorbid conditions in addition to their their medical condition. And so we talked about that for a while and we said, well, okay, how about if you screen for these behavioral health Mm -hmm. conditions? Well, the docs were not so inclined to do that if they didn't have a way to address a positive Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So what am I supposed to do? Where do I refer? I try now. I send people out. I don't know if they got there or not. I never get any information back. So in CTC fashion, we convened a, (laughs) a work group with a bunch of key stakeholders and said, let's talk about how we can you know, improve behavioral health services for people in primary care. And we created this work group. And the part that I loved is word got out that we were doing this and the behavioral health community called and said, can we come to these meetings? We said, oh, please do. You know, a really robust, fantastic group of health plan representatives, primary care providers, and behavioral health providers come to the table and work with us to put together a business case for integrated behavioral health in primary care, which we did. And we brought that business case to the CTC board and said, we think this makes sense and that we ought to be doing something about this. And people approved it. And then we went out and we sought funding for it. And we were really fortunate that the Rhode Island Foundation, Tufts Health Plan, and then later the Sim, the state Sim grant, Mm -hmm. all contributed to this three-year pilot program. And now I'll tell you a little bit about what we did in this pilot. I'm really excited about this because we're getting fantastic results. The pilot program embeds a behavioral health clinician in the primary care practice as part of the care team. They're not co-located. They're not a collaborator on the outside. They're in the care team. So it does have to be a practice that's big enough to have somebody Mm -hmm. there either full-time or part-time. We'll talk later about the community health teams and how they can assist smaller practices. So think of a medium to a large practice. They've got Mm -hmm. an embedded behavioral health clinician, and the practice as a whole is universally screening patients for depression, anxiety, and substance use disorder. Now the physician's not worried about that because if something pops up positive, they can take the person by the hand and walk them right down the hall and introduce them. We call it a warm handoff, but introduce them to a behavioral health clinician in the practice, where they can be fully assessed and then engage in treatment counseling. If further referrals are needed, that person would be able to help refer to specialty behavioral health if necessary. So we piloted this with 10 practices and the results have been amazing. The providers love it. We now have providers saying they can't even imagine practicing primary care without having a behavioral health clinician as part of the team. Wow. And Yeah. And the patients are engaging. And part of that is that there is less stigma with receiving primary, you know, behavioral health services in a primary care setting. Nobody knows. You drive in, you know, you're there with everybody else. Nobody knows what what's going on. You're just being seen. So I think that there is some advantage there that people, it's it's a trusted place. It's where Mm -hmm. your primary care doctors and if your primary care says I want to introduce you to somebody I think can help, then patients are more inclined to engage in behavioral health treatment. So we've seen, we did a qualitative analysis and we just got, you know, fantastic feedback in, in that regard. And when we looked at the financial information, we used the state all pair claims database to look at behavioral health pra- practices with integrated behavioral health, our 10 practices, compared to our regular CTC practices, and then compared to a broader group of comparison practices that are not patient-centered medical homes. And we saw an amazing difference. The total cost of care is significantly lower from integrated practices than even our even our CTC practices. It was like $44 per member per month lower. Wow. For integrated behavioral health over, over CTC practices, which are already significantly lower than the comparison group. We feel like we hit on something and we're very excited about it.
1: And I would imagine from an emotional standpoint, you think of yourself, anyone, you go to, you establish a relationship with a physician or a nurse practitioner, and you, there are, there's an emotional bond. There's a trust factor. That's why you go to them. Right. And if they're referring you to someone in their practice who they're coordinating care with, I can imagine that that is a great sense of relief. You're not segregated in an area, in a different place. And so you don't have a feeling of isolation. You have a feeling of your care being coordinated. And that's the best feeling of all. That's, yeah, a wonderful, that's a wonderful feeling.
0: Has it been a challenge finding behavioral health providers? Because there's such a shortage. And, you know, it seems like most of them uh, don't take insurance. How did you work with those providers to integrate them into these practices? Are they now accepting insurance? And it's part, or is it part of that PMPM?
2: recruiting for a behavioral health clinician who wants to work in primary care. It's a very different model of care delivery. It's not a 50 minute hour. It's not a closed door. Don't interrupt me session. You're part of a fast paced primary care practice. Your visits are probably 20 to 30 minutes instead of an hour. Many of the folks will have a sign that says, please interrupt me. Meaning if there's a need for a quick introduction and a warm handoff, don't let that patient out the door without making a connection. And people, patients even recognize that they remember they got it. introduction, you know, and it's a maybe five minutes. Hi, you know, but well, I'll see you tomorrow, but please come back, you know, that type of thing. So it's a it's a bit of a challenge. We initially have 12 practices in our pilot, and one of them had to pull out because they could not find somebody that they could hire that was bilingual for the, the, mm-hmm. the language that they needed in their community. So workforce development, is a big issue. We have been working with the state's Workforce Development Initiative. We've been working with Rhode Island College. They're really building out their social worker program, uh, licensed social workers. I think this past year, we placed 15 of them in primary care settings.
0: Great. We know
2: it's a problem and it's being addressed, but you know, it takes time to educate people, put them on the right track. They have to graduate, be supervised, get licensed, all of that. It's you know mm-hmm. it's a workforce development initiative. But um, we, we have found people that are interested in doing it. And once they get into it, the ones who, are, who like primary care and like that kind of collaborative care management approach really love it. You know, we had a couple of clinicians that said, I wasn't sure about this. You know, I'm used to my 50 minute hour, but they're like our biggest champions now they're just doing fantastic work and i think it's a benefit to them for example in, in one particular practice the clinical psychologist and the nurse care manager team up and they do group sessions for people with diabetes who are experiencing a high level of distress with the condition and they have achieved amazing results I mean, the patients are doing better they're learning how to cope they're realizing they're not in it alone there's other people like them that right. are doing the same going through the same challenges or have you know gone through things things. things that they're going through now. So there's even this kind of interaction. And when they looked at the hemoglobin A1c, which is the measure of diabetes management, the folks that were in the group significantly lowered their A1C by participating in the group. So mm-hmm. as, you know so the, so the clinical psychologist is just as excited about the outcomes and the, and the ability to be able to work with the patients both individually and in group sessions. That is really wonderful. That's
0: amazing. That's
1: great work. That's thinking outside of the box and bringing people inside the box <laughs> at the same time. So it's outside thinking, but inclusive action. Have you had any pushback at all?
2: pushback, like I mentioned earlier, was the idea of doing screening for something that you can not address. So by providing a resource in the practice, Mm -hmm. it took away that objection. It was like, well, of course I want to know what's going on with my patients, especially if I have somebody who can help address it. And Mm -hmm. I think that the, the the behavioral health clinician and the primary care physicians have really teamed up and they have different skill sets that they bring to the table and it's all about the patient and that's what everybody wants. They want the best of for, for the average Rhode Islander, how would this impact their experience with the healthcare system? They would see that the Primary care practice has a nurse care manager, somebody who's helping to follow and coordinate care for them. In the old days, that wouldn't have been the case. Great. And there's more preventive screening
1: for tobacco use, obesity, depression, anxiety, as, as you've
0: outlined some of this. Um yeah. So Deb, you talked about large practices and what you're doing with large practices, but what about the smaller practices? What are you doing for them? One of the
2: things that we're doing is what we're calling community health teams, and they are geographically based teams. We have six of them across the state, and they're staffed with community health workers and a behavioral health clinician, and they work as an extension of primary care, that's important. They're not just out there doing work in a silo. Everything comes back to primary care in our model. The primary care providers and the nurse care managers in those practices will refer high-risk patients to the community health team, and the community health team will deploy a community health worker to go find the patient. Sometimes even that's a challenge because people aren't even sure where they live anymore. Right, go find the patient, and they will meet with them either in their home or at a place in the community where they're comfortable and they establish a rapport and a relationship with that patient. And they look at the, social needs of the patient. That's a community health worker is somebody from the community. They know the community, the culture, the resources, and they can work with that individual to assess what the social needs are and put together a plan and implement the plan to meet those social factors. Can you talk
0: a little bit about why that's so important to have that social support?
2: Yeah, a lot of times people are not doing well with their health care or their care plan. And it's because there's many other things that are going on in their life that, you know, make it so they, you know, medical care is the last thing on their list. They don't have a roof over their head. They can barely put food on the table. You know, they don't have transportation. They don't have enough money to buy their medications this month or this week. There's a whole host of reasons like that that come into play that, you know, somebody in medicine might say, well, they're not compliant. You know, I told them what to do. They're not doing it. You know, there's a world out there of things that are going on with patients that they really, need help with. So helping to deal with what we call the social determinants are really important and it's some of the most rewarding work. It's very difficult to do. Again, going back to navigating the network, figuring out where to get the social services you need is very, very challenging. And so the community health workers are expert at figuring out the application process, the this, the that, to get patients the services that they need. Once they get those services, we're seeing patients' lives turn around. People who had no place to live have a roof over their head. People who didn't, you know, were worried about food. You know, they've got the means now through different programs to be able to afford food and their medication. When the community health team gets involved and is able to bring to bear the range of social services to help the patients and the families, it's really amazing what happens. So
1: then that would be the connection between the community, your community health team leaders and organizations such as LISC or others that can supplement the medical with the ancillary needs that people need for housing, food, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, the the, the community health teams are very tuned into all of the different resources in a community and what they do and how to access them. So that's the beauty of that. In addition on the community health team, as I mentioned, there's a behavioral health worker, a behavioral health clinician. So I would say about 60% of the time when the community health worker goes out and does an assessment, the individual also needs behavioral health Mm -hmm. support as well. So the behavioral health clinician then is able to be um, deployed to go out to the patient's home and to work with the patient, do a full assessment, as we discussed earlier, and to provide counseling and treatment and potentially referral if necessary. In that regard, the community health team is a great solution for Mm -hmm. expanded services for a small primary care practice. And we've seen that in our South County area in particular, where Mm -hmm. the South County area is, is really kind of devoid of a lot of services, particularly around behavioral health. And it also has a lot of small practices. So, you know, they've connected to the community health team and they just love it. I mean, their patients are are benefiting and the providers feel like they're actually able to do something for their patients.
1: One of the things that Joanne and I talked about in the past was the astounding uh, lack of resources in some of the wealthiest areas of South County. So one thinks of a certain town as being so wealthy and, and is in certain sections, and yet in other areas. Is, is devoid of access to care.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that's something you're addressing on a, on a global basis for the state of Rhode Island, which I think is just phenomenal.
0: With behavioral health, a lot of the challenges with um, you know, payment is that a lot of these providers don't accept insurance didn't want to be part of the system, but it sounds like with your model, you're bringing in new people that are willing to be part of the system and and hopefully, you know, be part of this transformation. We've certainly helped
2: to do recruiting. We've helped to develop job descriptions. We help interview candidates to make sure they're the right kind of pick for that setting. Mm -hmm. We've also trained up three additional, uh, what we call integrated behavioral health practice facilitators and these are the folks that are trained clinicians, psychologists, social workers, licensed social workers, family therapists who can go into a practice and, and serve as a kind of a consultant to work with the team. Even if the practice already had a behavioral health clinician and they were used to practicing in a more traditional way, if mm-hmm. they're open to the integrated model and they want to be part of the team, the practice facilitator can help bring them along to help show them how it's different, how, how to change their workflow and their processes a little bit so that they can fit better into an integrated model in primary care. And and that's been successful. One of our now trained facilitators was someone who comes from a traditional model and didn't think she was going (laughs) to like it. (laughs) And one of the things that I was really struck by was how you were
1: able to change the reimbursement on the number of visits per day. When you're looking at treating the whole person, or the family, or units of the family. Here, you said the primary care copays, patients may still receive two copays on the same day. Yeah,
2: here's what this is really about. When we started the program, and we were we bring all the practices together. We have regular sort of best practice sharing. We identify challenges. We talk about the challenges. We try to figure out how to solve them because most of the time the challenges may not just be practice specific. They could be more generalizable. Mm -hmm. A generalizable problem that came up right away was that there were 2 copays: one for primary care and one for behavioral health. And when we put a behavioral health clinician into a practice, they can bill the health plans for the behavioral health Service, but the patient was getting charged two copays, and the behavioral health copay was at a specialty rate, so the specialty level. Higher. So, so patients had not only. Two copays, but one was higher than the other. And that was a barrier to care because patients would say, I, I can't afford it. I can't go mm-hmm. to behavioral health. Because I, I can't do it. What happened recently, which was terrific because this really addressed part of the problem, is that OHIC conducted a parity study and the governor just approved legislation that goes into effect January 1st, where the behavioral health copays will be the same as primary care. So it'll be the same. Amount in the instance where somebody actually receives that warm handoff and is seen the same day, they're still getting two copays in a day. It's just that it's the same rate as primary care versus mm-hmm. a primary and specialty care copay. So there's still a little bit of a barrier, and we keep trying to bring that up so that it it stays in the in light that the the parity adjustment was fantastic. But there's right. more to do around. I think considering screening a prevention services, so there's no copay at all, and that if there's two visits in the same day, you just get charged one.
0: For the average Rhode Islander, how could this work impact their experience with the healthcare system?
2: Patients will will likely see more preventive screening, for some time now, we've been doing a screening around tobacco use and obesity, depression, and now we're adding anxiety, substance use screening. So they'll get to, you know, they'll they'll start seeing differences in the care that's delivered because of these kind of preventive screenings, and then they'll get to know the behavioral health clinician that's engaged in the practice and, and somebody that they can, you know, get to know and trust actually, um, in in their in their primary care. They'll also see a nurse care manager that is a new addition to, and and part of an addition to an advanced primary care practice. So part of the patient-centered medical home is having a nurse care manager to help coordinate care for for patients that are complex. We also have patient-centered medical homes call patients after they've been in the hospital for inpatient and or ED visits and, and usually to make sure they know that they were in and to try to bring them back into primary care and also to reassess the medications that they're on because quite often people go into the hospital and they mm-hmm. come up with a whole different list of medications. They go home and they're trying to figure out like is this the same as that or you know, do I? which ones do right. I take? So we call that medication reconciliation and that's a process that's very important post-discharge and one that the nurse care managers and the, and the practices focus on to make sure that the patients know what they're supposed to be taking. And very important in terms of addiction. Yep, absolutely. The other thing we're, that pa- patients will be seeing is in pediatrics. So we also um, are doing a lot of work in pediatrics with our, we call it PCMH Kids program. The moms will be screened for depression postpartum. This is something that's being promoted by the Academy of Pediatrics as mm-hmm. a best practice. And it's known that if a mom is, is depressed and struggling with a newborn, that that's going to trickle down and have an impact on the child over time. And right. so really important to identify that early on. And usually the moms are seen quite often because of well baby visits. They're seen often in pediatrics, way more often than they're seen by their primary care or an obstetrician. The focus is shifted to, you know, we don't know who you prime you know, we don't, you know, your primary care right. might be somebody else. <laughs> right. But you're you're here in pediatrics and we care about the relationship between the mom and the and the baby and how mom is doing. And so um, depression screening for moms, you know, one of our other focuses was on ADHD. You mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm. And um, we have implemented evidence-based guidelines in the practices that are coming through CTC on uh, how to manage uh, ADHD. So that's been really helpful. And, you know, folks had a lot to share and have really done a good job on that. Finally, the, the pediatric practices have voluntarily stepped up to introduce substance use, screening for adolescents, which is really complicated, because the adolescents are, are coming on on adulthood. And there's all these issues of confidentiality and what you tell the parents and what you don't tell the parents. But you know, here, you've got a kid in front of you who is yeah, using right. what do you do? Yes. With there is a crisis going on. And we have to try ways to get in front of it and, and to help people where we can. So those are some of the things that I think people would see in an advanced primary care practice in Rhode Island that didn't exist. In
1: terms of conversations everywhere you go, people say, it seems that anxiety and ADHD, uh, things that especially impact our children, are so on the rise. We're seeing so much more of it. And today, I happened to be coming back from an appointment and I I stopped at a stop sign and I saw a, a new mom with her baby uh, in a stroller with the net over it. You know, yet you don't see that often anymore Mm. because I'm in Florida. So it's 70 degrees today. (laughs) Young mom. And she had the most lovely aura about her. She's out walking the baby. And it occurred to me how very little I see of that anymore. That used to be a way of life Mm. mom's walking with the new, the baby looked to be about six to nine months old, Mm. sitting up in the stroller, the little bonnet on. And it was like a piece of time that I don't see anymore. And I wonder, you know, as as you're collecting so much data and interacting, do you feel that at some point um, you're going to be able to identify certain trends that are perhaps uh, causative? Um, Do you get the sense that maybe because you're integrating everything together. Um, you're, you Rhode
2: Island may be in a position to shed some light on that. I think the answer is yes, and I'm and I'm not going to say that it's just because of the work that we're doing. I think that there's work that's being done also by the state in terms of their uh, Medicaid data ecosystem. They call it, mm-hmm. and they're really looking across all programs to say who you know who is using our program and what's going on. And what they're finding is. Families, it's a constellation. It's not just a kid or a mom or a dad. It's a constellation. It's a family that's Mm -hmm. having difficulty and it's Mm -hmm. manifesting itself in many ways across the system. When we see little snippets of it, but at some point, you have to put the whole thing together and say that we have X number of families that need attention. And it's not a big number. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a big number, but not, you know, it's not millions. Right, right. A million people in the whole state, so you know, a few hundred families could, are really driving. You know, right, are involved with the system in a in a in a very serious way across the board and could really benefit from the right focus and complement right. and integration of services. A case study from the community health team, and I mentioned like how rewarding it is when you can actually help somebody kind of turn their life around, mm-hmm. and. And this was such a case where there was a gentleman that was living in a really bad situation and had medical, complex medical problems and was really helped by the community health worker who helped them helped him to get stable housing and get him back on his feet in many ways. What was so sweet about it is this person didn't have a lot of means, but he came to them and made a personal contribution, wrote a check and said, I want, you know, this has been such a life changing event for me. I want to contribute to the community health team so that if another patient ever needs help, you might be able to help them. It was such wow. a moving thing, you know, to, to you know for a patient to, to sort of be that generous and yeah. to, to come back and, and want to, to share that with somebody else. Well,
1: it's the epitome of the saying, paying it
2: forward. That's a wonderful,
1: wonderful story. You've certainly been an incredible guest, Deb. We compliment you on all of the work that you're doing. And I'm thrilled that the state of Rhode Island can benefit by your expertise and your
0: enthusiasm and talent. Thank you for joining us, Deb. And we look forward to having you back in the future. visit our website at asgp.com. Don't forget to share our podcast with your family and friends.
1: Thank you for listening to Getting to the Core Issues, where we bring you solutions for solving
0: the healthcare puzzle.